Welcome, uh, members and guests, to the Australian Institute of International Affairs of Western Australia. Uh, our format for the evening, um, we're going to ask the panellists, um, and we'll probably start just in a linear way with Robin, followed by Gordon, followed by Mark, with a five-minute um, session each, five to seven minutes of opening comments uh, on how you see 2023. I hope you've polished your crystal ball so you can gaze into it well. And, um, and then following that, we'll have a discussion um, that I will moderate and very quickly we'll move into a Q&A session which will open, of course, to the audience, which is something we love to do. Thank you. Please, Robin, I'll pass you the mic. So welcome, everyone, and it's, it's great to see you as, as one of the committee members of AIIA. It's always a, a challenge to figure out the venue, the place, but most importantly, the topic and the people. And so we picked a really narrow topic this week, this <laughs> month, that, that um, we didn't think there'd be a lot of interest in. Um, and, um, and, um, and one which we were absolutely certain that all three of us would get perfectly right, and that a year from now, we can say, see, I told you so. Um, not really. So you heard their bios. Would you be stupid enough to speak on a panel with them? Probably not. So I try to think of something I could say that I was nearly certain that neither Professor Flake nor Professor Leeson, Leeson, sorry, would, would braise in their presentations. So I'm going to tell you what Feng Shui says is going to happen this year. Because I think it's probably as good a way of predicting what's going to happen as <laughs> anything else we could do. So if, um, as, as many of you probably know, on February 4th, we began the year of the water rabbit. And I don't claim to be a feng shui expert. I'm a newbie to this, but I'll take any advice anybody will give me. And if you look at investments, since everything, I would tell you just watch what I do based on my deep feng shui knowledge, and you do the opposite, and you're going to be just fine. <laughs> But this is the, um, as I said, the year of the water rabbit. And so it's a water and wood year. Those are the elements that are important. And the um, element that's weak in this year is earth. And that means that more natural disasters are possible. Now, Chinese New Year started on February 4th. Chinese Lunar, the formal Chinese Lunar New Year was um, February 4th. And what happened on February 6th? that horrible, horrible earthquake, the first of them in Turkey and Syria. So suddenly I'm wondering, hmm, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll pay attention to the next paragraph. The other thing that's interesting is that, that fire is weak in this year. The element of fire is weak in this year. And um, fire controls air travel. So as somebody who's getting on a plane on Friday, on Monday, um, I'm a little bit worried because they say there could be more air disasters in 2023. I'm not saying you should stay home. I'm just saying that's what the, the, um, the, the feng shui masters are saying. But this is the quote I particularly liked. And I think you should all take this to heart because it gives you just as much insight and certainty as to what's going to ha happen in 2023 as anything else that you hear tonight. I quote, the warring countries conflict should end bringing peace and less tension. Sounds good. But unfortunately, it won't end conflict and war, <laughs> and only the fight may go underground. Tensions and protests continue, assassinations, coups, 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 and terrorism. 
So it doesn't really give us a clear picture there. But if you want to believe the good news, which I think we all look at horoscopes and do, whatever they are, um, maybe we can believe that good news about this year. It's interesting also to think that the last yin water rabbit year, so this goes on a 60-year cycle, was 1963. And that was, interestingly, the signing of the partial nuclear test ban, the first nuclear test ban agreement. Also, several coups and the assassination of JFK. So that's my feng shui insight into 2023. Trying to think about what comes forward for us this year, um, for the world this year, I uh, have to admit that um, I kind of agree with something that Joseph Stiglitz wrote recently. He wrote, I'm an optimist. The glass is one-eighth full. <laughs> and um, if, we, if we look at the situation we're in now, and um, first of all, looking at a worldwide economy and the steps that are being taken by monetary authorities to try to rein in inflation, and you know, I, I don't have to tell anyone here, you read the papers just as much as I do, but the idea that we are, we are relying again on these old school tools, because we frankly don't know what else to rely on, of monetary policy and increasing interest rates to stop inflation. But this is an inflation that's, that's caused by um, supply chain issues, not necessarily by too the, the adage that we had when I studied economics many, many decades ago of too much money chasing too f few goods. Well, the question is, why are there too few goods? And in this case, it is supply chain issues. It's not just that we all have a lot more money to spend. And so how does making money and investment more expensive add to solutions of the supply chain issues? Also, how does that add to solutions among about the idea of of creating energy sources and energy shifts that will help us deal with climate change. So one of my concerns is that if we look at this inflation caused by things like the war in Ukraine and the impact that's had on things like fertilizer, many of you know I come from a farm family in western Kansas, and we can't get fertilizer. And that's, you know, because of Ukraine. It's just all these things is third, fourth, fifth order effects. And then, so we've got the constraints on food production, the need for investments in things like critical minerals outside of China, and, um, and investment in newer, cleaner energy sources. So I'm concerned that this monetary policy approach is going to constrain investment in new sources of energy and also projects to address China's domination of the supply chain, um, which, again, is part of what's going to drive what happens in 2023. So just quickly to think about, lay out very big picture questions. I'm so glad I got to go first because um, both Gordon and Mark are much bigger experts in these particular spheres of influence and, and the questions. So for me, I see Obviously, my background's in the United States, and I think about what's happening in the U.S. Again, I've practically called every single presidential election wrong, so don't listen to me. But um, if I... 
one of which I was sitting on a platform next to Gordon, and both of our jaws hit the floor at the same time <laughs> when President Trump got elected. Um, but um, if you look at what's happening in the United States, which, you know, like it or not, is probably one of the most important uh, centers of influence in the, in the world, we're moving into a presidential election cycle that's going to chew up so much bandwidth in the US. I mean, it already has, but if, if you think it's boring now, wait. It'll, it's just gonna get a lot more and more of the same. And so if we think about what role was the United States going to play in the world, what role does the United States population play in terms of public opinion, the, the airwaves are just gonna be covered with things about will he or won't he, Trump, who's gonna go against him. It's, it's going to be the next year and a half, you know, <laughs> primaries and the election all the time. So I think that's an important thing for us to remember when we think not only what can we expect of the United States, but what can we expect of the Biden administration, because the Biden administration will be seeing every single action through the lens of how is this going to affect the Democratic Party's prospects for re-election. And I think what we just saw in Ukraine is part of that. It allows Biden to, to position himself as young and vibrant and, and hawkish and supportive. Um, probably even more concerning, the United States position vis-a-vis -vis China is going to have that underlaying issue. So we'll be looking at it as we go forward and you know, Biden will want, run or won't run and as much as I don't think he's a fabulous candidate, I fear what will happen if he doesn't because the Democrats, our primary system is basically the best and brightest of each party standing in around in a circle and firing at each other for about a year. And then um, we'll end up with what happens after that. So that's nice. Finally, um, China, so as I mentioned, the United States approach to China, approach to China is going to, to be colored somewhat by, well, very much so, by the upcoming election. And if we look at China's side, so their actions are also going to be considered by the domestic demands to be strong and show their, their force in the world. Um, it's quite concerning what they're doing vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Will they decide to, I can't imagine they'll decide to actually send weapons because that just doesn't seem like a cautious measured effect. So they're walking this fine line between not supporting the US and the West, but not getting bagged down, bogged down in the quagmire relationship that close support with Russia would mean. And that's going to be a tricky relationship to, to manage for all countries and, and to, to sort of have an influence on, but particularly Australia, I believe. Um, Australia's again gonna be in that position of balancing between their so you say values-driven role with the West and their geographical role and their trade dependence on China. And finally, we've got the, extending, uh, the expanding US military pres presence in, in Australia. So we end up thinking about Ukraine, or I, and, and what's going to happen there, and I have no idea, and I'll just share you a little story. My youngest daughter lives in London. She was in Ikea the other day, and You've got a 25-year-old writing home, Mom, I didn't know what to do. There was this, this lady and her daughter, and they were just begging for jobs there from Ukraine, and she wrote back, Mom, how's it going to end? 
what's going to happen? And I, I don't think we've been, we've been so lucky for so many decades now. Our 25-year-olds haven't confronted those questions. I certainly didn't when I was 25. And we, I don't see it. I hope Gordon and Mark will have the definitive answer for us. I'm sure they will. Um, but it, it's just this horrible, horrible thing. So the one thing, though, I did find something to be optimistic about in this year. And so far, it looks like the, the doctrine of mutually, disturbed, uh, mutually assured destruction is working for now. And on that cheery note, I'll turn it over. <laughs> Well, as Robin mentioned uh, the last time, I think, or one of the previous times on the panel with her trying to predict the future was Election Day 2016, and so I'm, I'm duly humbled after those results uh, and hesitant to try to make any firm predictions. So I thought what I would do is just kind of make five points about things that I think are trends that we should watch for this year, key developments that are going to really determine uh, what 2023 looks like when we look back on it at this time next year. Uh, the first is, is an important trend, which I would call Apex Australia. Um, in the, I've been here nine years now. The first five years that I was in Perth, I did absolutely nothing between Christmas and Australia Day, as is my constitutional right, right? <laughs> Generally, if you live in WA, nothing should happen. Uh, it's been eroding over the years. This year has been just insane. The entire month of January was taken away, not by events that I planned or things that happened, but by this tremendous surge in interest in Australia externally. Japanese delegations, you know, Malaysian delegations, Korean delegations, Vietnamese delegations, Indonesian delegations, Indian delegations, U.S. delegations. The level of interest in Australia is greater than I think it's ever been at any point in our history. Part of that is because we're in the quad. You know, you know, you've got these four big countries, that, you know, a billion point four Indians, uh, 365 million Americans, 110 million Japanese, and us. Uh, part of it is because of AUKUS. Part of it is because of our role in future energy, critical materials, supply chains, something that everybody's concerned about. When Prime Minister Kishida visited Perth last October, uh, we made the observation that in contrast to his predecessor, or one of his predecessors, Abe Shinzo's visit here in 2014, where Perth was just a venue, uh, it, for Prime Minister Kishida, Perth was the destination. So again, the level of interest in Australia more broadly. Uh, anybody who's anybody in this region needs an Indo-Pacific strategy, you can't have one without Australia. Anybody who's interested in future energy, future batteries, supply chains, and everybody is, can't really think about those things without Australia. So that, to me, is a prediction. It's going to be a busy year. It's good for Australia, uh, but it's going to be taxing on us as well, given the level of interest. Firm prediction number one. Number two, less confident in this prediction, but I look ahead, relative electoral stability for 2023. So in contrast to many of the previous years and some that are coming starting 2024, we don't have any major elections, uh, and we shouldn't have any major political transitions this year. So for 20, you know, if you look at it, the United States, obviously the process will gear up, but it's, it never stops in the United States. But in Australia, likewise, it shouldn't be changing. In China, in Japan, in Korea, in Indonesia, in India, 2023, there's nothing on the pipeline. So obviously that could change, 
but it should be a period of electoral stability, and that is interesting because it allows us to plan a little bit more uh, firmly than we would otherwise. Uh, number three, and here I echo uh, uh, Robin's um, concern without any answer. Uh, I think ultimately the war in Ukraine and how it is uh, either resolved or continues is going to be probably the most important factor in foreign policy globally. Already we just had in the last almost 12 months this tremendous spillover effect on economics, tremendous spillover effect on, 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 on diplomacy, tremendous spillover effect on, on security, tremendous spillover effect on defense industry, uh, and, and long-term planning everywhere. It's one of those things that's kind of changed everything. We can no longer use the term post-war Europe anymore. It, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it, it really has some real implications in this region beyond. And so how it plays out, I don't know. Um, I, I think it was quite a remarkable scene to see just in the last three days uh, most of the European leaders and other Western leaders at the Munich Security Conference making a real clear clarion call of their support for Ukraine. That surprise visit by President Biden uh, to the Ukraine. Uh, it's quite an image of him walking down the streets with you know, bomb sirens going off. Uh, the very next day, Putin hunkered down by a bunch of unsmiling cronies, you know, in a very paranoid way, giving his, his speech. So it's going to be interesting, uh, but frightful. I don't know the answer, uh, but I do know that however that turns is going to have impacts on, on what the year is like. Right? Uh, number four, I would title Summetry and Substance. 2023 is going to be a really interesting year for Summetry. Uh, Australia is hosting its first Quad Leaders Meeting. Uh, it'll be in the middle of the year. We don't know exactly when. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Albanese is going to India in March, and, and that's going to be a major determinant leading up to the Quad. We can talk more about the Quad during a Q&A if you'd like. Uh, India is hosting the G20 in September. Uh, ASEAN is being hosted as well as the East Asia Summit by Indonesia later on the year, September. Uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Initiative is hosted by the United States in San Francisco. Uh, and, uh, and then also the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, uh, which is the U.S.'s erstwhile answer to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is supposed to be done by, by November. So I, I titled that section Summitry and Substance. So the diplomacy of this year, foreign policy of this year, is going to depend on whether or not we do anything with all these meetings. The good news is, if you saw who I listed, you know, Australia, India, Indonesia, U.S., uh, uh, there's a lot of, of, of goodwill and collaboration between that, that bunch, a lot of synergies between the different meetings, and a chance that they can actually use them to do, to do good in that context. And so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about global, at least Indo-Pacific regional diplomacy in 2023, uh, just because of that reason. And the final thing, and this is an area where I actually do have more, more confidence in predictability, and that is demography. Uh, I've long believed that demography is destiny. I wouldn't for a second consider myself to be a, a trained demographer, but I, I play one on TV, uh, and, and I've followed them extremely closely. Um, according to the UN World Population Program, next month, India will overtake China in terms of population. Seems like a pretty big seismic shift, right? Uh, that news broke last July when I was in Delhi, and everybody who would listen to me, I told them, my view is that it already happened, and it happened years ago. Right? Uh, the, the truth is, 
Uh, every demographer I know, both inside and outside of China that I follow closely, believe that for the last 40 years, most Chinese provinces have been fudging their birth data because obviously you have more births, you get more education funding for your schools, da 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 da, and you're kind of trapped in the cycle, particularly post the one-child policy. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, a number of them believe that the actual Chinese population today isn't 1.4.28 billion, uh, 1.428 billion, but actually around 1.3 billion. I know whether there's a missing 100 million Chinese. Now, what's 100 million people between friends, right? It doesn't seem like that big a deal until you realize that China is facing a, a just a stark demographic cliff, a demographic cliff. And this is where demography is destiny, right? We know countries like Korea and Japan have had a declining birth rate. Lifetime fertility rate for a woman to be able to sustain a, a population is 2.1, right? China is already, you know, officially about 1.2. In reality, you know, pro demographers like uh, Professor Yi Fuxian believe it's about 0.85, right? And if you factor out of that several recent things, what I was just talking about, the missing 100 million people, that means that this year, there are about 50 million people who are not having children because they don't exist, right? Uh, which means that pace of demographic decline is much sharper than people believe. The Shanghai Institute for International Studies, again, official government-supported thing, has an estimate out there that Chinese population will shrink by 2100 to 770 million people in half, right? Uh, it, this uh, demographer who I follow very closely and I've been trying desperately to find somebody to refute his data, he takes, he's a pediatrician by trade who became a demographer, was kicked out of China because he wrote a book about condemning the one-child policy saying it was a national disaster. He's written numerous books since then. And his core conclusion is that if you take already the problems with the numbers and you add on top of that uh, the fact that Chinese divorce rates, even pre-COVID, have been soaring, Chinese, you know, uh, marriage age has been soaring. You know, the number of children has been dropping like a rock. He believes that by the year 2100, China will have a population somewhere between 310 to 440 million people. Uh, and again, that's hard to predict that far out. It is pretty easy to predict what will happen in 20 years based on what's happening today. In one way or the other, unless China is successful doing something that no country in history has ever done, which is reversing a, a, a declining birth rate, we've got a really big issue. And it's a big issue for WA, right? Because, you know, that's a real sharp decline in the country. So I say that because it's not just China. It's just probably something you hadn't been thinking of, right? Uh, since I've arrived here in WA, one of my stock lines was to say that I brought with me from Washington, D.C. almost 10 years ago, not any hostility towards China. I'd been there 40 times, 40 different cities and provinces, and had hundreds of friends, right? But I brought with me uh, a, a fear that I was far more concerned about Chinese weakness than I was Chinese strength. And I've long believed that the one person I know who agrees with me is Xi Jinping. Uh, and his actions last year continue to show that. Uh, and if you look ahead, you know, there's a world of hurt. President Biden said something that was quite remarkable uh, just last week. He said, you know, uh, for all the problems that the U.S. has or Australia has or the democracy has, the one person in the world that he would not want to be right now is Xi Jinping, and given those challenges. And so you add that to that. So that's my prediction. Uh, uh, again, not just for 2023, but hopefully it gives us some grist for the mill, and, 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 and Mark can tell me where I'm wrong. So, okay. <laughs> Thank you.
you're a hard act to follow, Gordon, but just picking up on that point about demography, I would argue for what it's worth that uh, a decline in human population generally is a good thing because one of the things that I'm obsessed about, and I feel I should offer a health warning to the younger members of the audience, you might want to make an earlier rush for the exits because I'm famously doom-laden when I talk about the environment and, and much else these days, but uh, there's a lot to be fairly gloomy about, and a decline in population uh, of our principal uh, strategic concern, I can't see what the problem of that is at all, personally, but uh, I mean, I don't know why we're spending quite as much money as we are defending ourselves from a diminishing population, but that's something we can talk about in, in Q&A, perhaps. But, uh, but here's a prediction for you. As bad as 2022 was, 2023 is going to be worse, and I'd stake quite a lot of money on that. And uh, one of the things is uh, we didn't have a war happening in uh, Europe at the beginning of 2022. That happened a little while afterwards. Uh, and I would have bet money, this is, this is my predictions, but I would have argued that uh, Europe was the last place we would ever see an old-fashioned interstate war again. And I was absolutely dumbfounded and gobsmacked when one broke out there. So that was my last straw of optimism, if you like, about the world. And uh, that turned out to be uh, something of a fallacy. So what do I know about predictions? So I didn't see that coming at all. But now that we've got that, uh, the question is, how do we stop that? And how do we get into that situation in the first place? And there's a lot of blame to go around. And it's not just about Russia either. I mean, I'm no fan of Putin, but there's a, there's a serious uh, and complex debate about the historical development of uh, relations within Europe. Uh, and there's quite a bit of blame to go around. We can talk about that in Q&A as well, I think. But, uh, but my principal concern and the reason I'm so gloomy about what's going to happen this year is because if we don't do something about climate change remarkably quickly on an epic, unprecedented historical scale, we're doomed. It's as simple as that. We're just not going to make it in anything like a civilized kind of environment. And I'm not the only person saying this. You might think I'm a bit flaky and a bit of a lefty and a weirdo, etc., etc. And you're probably right. I mean, I am an aging hippie. I wouldn't dispute that for a moment. But Antonio Guterres is not. He's the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, and he thinks we're on a road to quote-unquote collective suicide because of our failure to address climate change in the time available. And I'm not optimistic at all that the current crop of leaders around the world, including Xi Jinping, including Joe Biden, and including Mad Vlad and many other people like him, they're not going to do anything about this either because their priorities are still locked in a mindset that revolves around traditional sorts of strategic threats and dangers that a country like Australia, we can talk about this in Q&A as well, because have lots to say about Australia's policy, which is just appalling. And Albanese is a great improvement on what went before, but he's still crushingly disappointing when it comes to thinking about strategic issues and climate change in particular. And we can say a lot about that, and it's worth saying as well, I think. But that's another reason why I'm very pessimistic about uh, our prospects for doing something about climate change, because if a country like Australia, uh, which is either permanently on fire or underwater, if Australia can't get their head around uh, the fact that this might actually be a bit of a problem, might be a direct threat to life and, and our standard of living, if they can't understand that, then where in the world could, uh, given that they don't have the capacity to act as we could do if we decided to, if we had the capacity to think independently about our foreign policy, our domestic policy, and to get the kind of priorities that are going to make a difference to young people in the future right. And by the time that people like Greta Thunberg are my age, uh, it's going to be about 2070. And if we haven't done an awful lot about fixing up climate change uh, in that time, 
they're going to be stuffed. They're not going to have a future that's worth uh, contemplating because of the entirely credible scientific predictions that have been made about our future. So that's worth kind of thinking about as well. So Gordon's right to point to the, the issue of Ukraine, and it is a doozy of a problem, and fixing climate change would be difficult enough without a conventional, old-fashioned, traditional interstate war going on in the middle of Europe. So quite how we solve that, particularly now that Mr. Putin's withdrawn from the nuclear control agreement that they have with the states uh, and is threatening to use nuclear weapons. I mean, if that doesn't focus people's attention that there might be a bit going wrong in the world and all that plucky optimism isn't actually as credible as it might, might once have been, and I don't know what will. But anyway, we'll leave that aside for a moment. And just one other thing we might want to think about. Uh, Gordon would know a lot more about this than Robin too, no doubt, uh, because it's in your former homeland. And don't take this personally. This is not an anti-American diatribe by any state. But one, but one of the things that's, that could happen this, this year is the, the debt ceiling in the states is going to uh, need to be lifted yet again. And this is always an issue, and it's a particularly an issue when American politics is so toxic and polarized and incapable of acting in the quote-unquote national interest, much less the collective interest of the international community, if there is such a thing. So there's going to be a, a, a doozy of a struggle around the debt ceiling. It's not impossible that it'll end badly. If it does, uh, there's going to be yet another American uh, economic crisis that was manufactured in the United States as the global financial crisis was in 2009. That's not going to do much for America standing in the world. And in this big confrontation, allegedly, that's happening between the United States and China, struggle between democracy and autocracy, the democracies aren't going to be looking too good if they can't get their act together and fix their uh, economic problems domestically, not to mention their political problems as well. So, so that's something to think about as well. But, uh, but anyway, if we can't get America, and this is not, this is both America and China to blame for this, and everybody else for that matter, but if we can't get America and China to cooperate, to communicate uh, usefully, then we're all in uh, a really bad way. And you'd be fascinated to know that I spent the morning reading, what was it called? China's new uh, global security initiative. And as you might expect, it's a pretty self-serving, bland uh, document full of uh, motherhood statements about working together and blah, blah, blah. But here's my suggestion for what it's worth that might make 2023 a little bit better. Call the Chinese out. If they've got these big ideas about how to save the world, what we should do about international cooperation, the Americans should say, okay, let's have a big conference on how we solve the war in Ukraine. United States and China will lead it because China is one of the few countries that's got any leverage over Ukraine at all. Let's put some pressure on. Let's call the Chinese out and see, get them to put their money where their mouth is. I mean, how's that for a suggestion for 2023? Thank you very much. That, that was, that, that's really rich and fertile ground for a discussion. I guess I, I, had, I, I knew that Mark would, would focus on... Um, climate change and, and the battle against it. One, one thing that we've seen in 2022, it's, it's not only that it is not nothing is happening, or not enough is happening, I, I think you would argue, Mark, or you would certainly agree with that statement. We've seen the cost pressures for energy bring home some really hard truths or uh, you know, br brought home some reality to so I guess the economic way of thinking around climate change. We've seen coal prices go up. We've seen coal, new coal mines. You know, there's been about 
three or four countries that never exported coal started exporting coal because of the prices that, uh, particularly in Europe, um, you know, European countries were commanding. So in that situation, what I've taken away from that is, at the end of the day, the wallet talks much, much more than, I guess, um, the, the, the thought of a common good or a global common good, Secretary Guterres, you know, notwithstanding. So I guess the question, and I'll go to, to Gordon first and then to, to Robin and i come back to you, Mark, um, in terms of what is it going to take if we've seen the threat, the voices talk about, talking about the threat, the political leaders get together, they talk about it, but when reality hits and the wallet is hit and there's lights are going out and people are feeling cold in their homes, you see a different behavior. So how do you combat that and what do you think is going to change? Just some thoughts. Thank you. Uh, obviously, this is a, a, a question for which world leaders everywhere are searching for answers. Uh, and, and, and there is no solution uh, in our political systems. So you're seeing behavior in dictatorial or less democratic systems uh, like China or Russia or others that are, again, driven by their own pocketbook issues. And so it doesn't mean that they have the choice to decide that all of a sudden they're going to go entirely green, even though they have you know, the full dictatorial ability to do so. And democratic societies, obviously, everybody wants, everybody wants you know, cheap, reliable, and green energy. That's what we want, right? The problem is you can't get all three at the same time, and so there are always trade-offs, and democratic societies are about trade-offs and, and, try, and, and, and trying to get to, to that process. I, I tend to be a little bit more optimistic uh, than Mark, which is good, I, because I have to live about 10 years longer than he does if I work on it. I don't know, he, he's far healthier than I am, so I may not get that, but the reality is, um, um, you know, so many of these problems are, are caused by technology, uh, so many of them are, are, you know, in search of technological solutions, which alone cannot solve it, but certainly serve to mitigate. Um, I tend to look around the world and see, you know, changes in terms of uptake of solar, uptake of, of electric vehicles, uptake of, of conversation ideas that you couldn't even imagine 10 years ago. Uh, I mean, again, the first Tesla was sold in, in Western Australia until 2015, I think. Uh, my guess is that next wave is pretty good, and, and I'm driving a Toyota Hilux right now, which is not responsible, but our next car will probably be an electric car, right? So long run, big problems, issue, uh, but in, it, you know, we, we'll just kind of deal with them uh, incrementally as a society, and as things get worse, we'll pay more to deal with them than we would have otherwise, but th that would just kind of motivate greater, greater responses. So I know that's a, a fluff answer, and the kind of fluff that Mark was poking, but the reality is, you know, the, other, uh, the alternative of just curling up and dying, you know, in, in democratic societies that are frozen is, is not there as well. So we just kind of muddle our way through as best we can. I think it's a, it's a policy decision, it's a policy issue. You know, governments forego an awful lot of money because they don't get excise taxes on huge sales of cigarettes now. But at some point, we as a society made a decision that cigarettes shouldn't be sold in general, and we should make it really hard to sell them and really expensive. And to the extent we can do that to end up with a world that's more sustainable, that's what we need to do. And I mean, I, I drive an electric car, but I know I plug it into a system that's powered by coal. <laughs> that's, 
you know, we need to have really honest and 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 blatantly like examining ourselves discussions about these things. Um, and and then we as voters need to say, we know it's going to cost more, but we want to do it. Now, easy for me to say. I'm not in Ukraine with no power. I'm not in a, in a world where, you know, personally I'm against nuclear power, but I've never had to make the choice. So it's, it's, I'll, I don't mean to be hypocritical, but I really do think that until we as voters make it really clear to the people we, we elect that this is what we expect, it's not going to change, and we are going to continue to approve coal-fired coal mines and destruction of reefs and all that sort of thing. Um, and so how do we, as voters, stop that and, and make, first of all, change our views and be willing to pay more, perhaps, in the short term? Although, as you say, the technology is moving along. I mean, I went and looked at cars this morning I can buy a Tesla for not a lot more than I can buy a similar quality, you know, luxury, whatever, other vehicle. So if that's how I vote, if that's how my dollars vote, it'll make a difference. Uh, if you want to be slightly cheered up, there's a book by a guy called Mark Jacobson, I think his name is, and it's called No Miracles Needed, and it's a blueprint for how we could transform uh, everybody's economy uh, along sustainable lines through water power, was it WWS water, solar, and what's the other one? Wind. Yes, wind. Of course, I should know about that. Uh, but anyway, it's a it's a good blueprint. Uh, it looks plausible. Uh, it's using existing technology, uh, and all it requires is the political will uh, to do it and uh, the political will to take on powerful vested interests who are currently profiting from and benefiting from the continuing exploitation of fossil fuels. Unless that happens, uh, it won't make the slightest difference. And I think that's what's crushingly disappointing about the Albanese government. They're frightened to death that the mineral companies will run another campaign against them to undermine electoral support, which will probably be successful. Uh, they are unwilling to take on the uh, gas and coal companies. They're I mean, in a sensibly well-organized world that recognize the dangers that we collectively face, the coal industry in Australia will be shut down tomorrow. Yes, there'll be a few jobs lost, and yes, we'd lose some uh, valuable exports, but uh, we're going to lose the future generation's lives and uh, sustainable lifestyles and capacity for a civilized existence. I mean, those are the stakes. I just don't know how hard it is to grasp it. Don't they read these reports that are put out endlessly by the IPCC uh, and the predictions they make about the very short term unless we transform things very rapidly and do something about it? So, I mean, as I said, if a country like Australia, with all of its advantages uh, and with its unbelievably benign strategic environment, which our policymakers also don't seem to be able to recognize. So instead of actually transforming the uh, economy of Australia along green sustainable lives, which lines, which could be an exemplary model for the rest of the world to follow and to recognize the benefits of doing this, instead of doing that, we're going to spend, what is it, 90 billion on nuclear subs that won't arrive for four years, probably won't work in the way that they've uh, been described in the first place, will cost vastly more than we were ever led to believe in the first place. And in 40 years' time, what the bloody hell is the world going to look like? I mean, um, what's the uh, 
uh, you know, China is actually not thinking of invading. I thought I'd just pass that on. I've got that on good authority. Uh, so quite what difference Australia would make, whether we have 10 of these submarines or 20, we are not going to deter China from doing anything it's thinking about doing. If they're not de deterred by the United States, they're not going to take the slightest notice of anything that we do. So we could save all that money, uh, demonstrate the value of doing something completely different uh, from the standard... Uh, way of thinking about these things that's uh, dominated Australian policy since the Second World War, if not before. And we could do something useful, but the chances of this happening are, I think, vanishingly small because there's a strategic culture in this country and every other country that just simply lacks the imagination to grasp what are the real uh, challenges and threats to the Australian way of life, in inverted commas. You can hang on to the mic. Uh, I've got my next question, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you. And it's a good segue, actually, and I prepared this. I didn't know you were going to segue just then, but it, um, maybe my predictive analysis is picking up. Um, one, one trend, uh, one thing that happened last year um, that maybe didn't capture as much of the Australian media's attention was uh, Japan and its, its, its quite fundamental shift in its defense policy. Um, um, and it's causing ructions in Japan, as we know. But to your point, Mark, even the Japanese, even the Japanese are fearful of the strategic outlook. So much so they're changing a fundamental tenet in their in the way they organized their societies since 1945. So you are really fighting a losing battle in trying to uh, argue that case. Um, maybe you can reflect on that. And why, why have the Japanese, if, if you're, if, you know, Australia has had this posture for a long time. Japanese have tried to weave and duck on it. They've decided not to weave and duck anymore as much. Can you reflect on that? Now, Gordon knows much more about Japan than I do, but let me just make this observation. I used to think this is another of the crushing disappointments of the last few years. I used to think that Japan was a wonderful role model for the world in many ways because getting a couple of atomic bombs may do this to you, but they changed their view about militarism, about the, the benefits such as they are of being a capable military power, spending lots of uh, money on guns and bombs and putting a military cohort in charge. Now, that clearly seemed to be not a terribly good idea after the Second World War. And pacifism was deeply embedded in the Japanese society. And I thought this was a wonderful thing and, a, again, a potential role model for the rest of the world. But unlike uh, me, the American government in particular saw them as freeloaders and bludgers and not pulling their weight and nagged them endlessly to uh, spend more on uh, their own defense and being able to do their bit a burden sharing, I think, was the jargon we used to use in those days, uh, and to spend more money on, um, on military capability. Now, the problem, of, I think there are alarming echoes of what happened before the First World War, because in those days, people thought, if you've got alliances, if you've got powerful military forces, that will deter anybody from doing anything stupid or rash, and we'll all be safe and live happily ever after. I think we know uh, from the experience of the First World War, that's not quite how things wor worked out. Uh, and you can see uh, alarming similarities uh, of that happening now. There's, a, there's an, uh, an emerging arms race in this region, which Australia is one of the 
driving forces uh, in uh, bringing this about, and it's just a colossal waste of money, apart from anything else, particularly for countries that can't really afford it. And the last they need to be spending money on is super-duper guns and bombs and more submarines of, you know, Vietnam and Indonesia. I mean, it's just absolutely bonkers. But, uh, but that's the situation we find ourselves in, and Australia is at the sharp end of this, partly because of their alliance relationship with the United States. They feel obliged to do our bit, to, to demonstrate that we are a credible alliance partner. Uh, and the worrying thing is, and there's one thing that Peter Dutton's right about in life, and this may be the only thing, but he's, there's one thing he's right about. In the event of a war breaking out between uh, China and uh, the United States over Taiwan, we will fight with America. He's dead right about that. There's absolutely no doubt about it, despite the fact that it's of no direct uh, strategic significance to Australia, as was the, the Vietnam War, the First World War, you name it. But Australia's always been there doing its bit. Again, Australia could demonstrate that there are other paths that could be pursued. And if they're nothing else, they're a sight bloody cheaper than buying uh, nuclear subs, which will probably never arrive, never work, et cetera. Et cetera. Gordon, please. So the best possible rejoinder to, to Mark's impassioned words are his own confession at the beginning that the one thing he did not see at the beginning of last year was war in Europe. Who would do that? Who would invade another country in Europe? It's inconceivable. We're talking about 70 years post-World War Europe. But no, evil exists. You know? the decisions are made based on power that don't necessarily make sense, right? And I will tell you, Japan is not stupid. They're not rearming just because the Yanks made them do it. They're genuinely concerned about Chinese and Chinese intent towards them. The Vietnamese, they're not stupid. They've been invaded by China. They, you know, not just 1979, for a thousand before that. They know full well the consequences of a rearmed and confident and strong Japan. The Philippines, they're not stupid. They're not doing it just because the Yanks said so. You know, they've got real territorial concerns. All these countries in the region, right? They're not, you know, they're not doing it just because some even American puppet masters are forcing them to rearm for the sake of rearming. It's because there does exist differences in terms of the way the world runs. There are real threats. And we thought for a period of time that we were moving towards Star Trek, right? End of World War II, it's the post-Cold War era, we're done with that, it's Federation of Planets, things are gonna be good. Even then terrorism came along, 9-11 came along, and it seemed like, okay, that's just a bit of bump in the road. We're still heading towards a globalized society. But it doesn't look that way today, right? And it doesn't look that way today just in academic circles or just in kind of hard right policy circles in national capitals. It looks that way for most countries in Europe today. They have a very different view of security and what they have to do and what they have to be able to do to respond and to deter. You know? And again, I'm not someone who blithely dismisses deterrence, right? Um, my basic view of Australia, and I've only been an Australian citizen for three and a half years, I've been here for 10, is that a country like ours, how do we guarantee our sovereignty? How do we guarantee our ability to maneuver in the world? Well, we do it traditionally. Obviously, we have armed forces, but they are so small, just like our population. There are five million more Texans in the world than there are Aussies. Put that in, put that in your, your cap, right? Figure that out, right? You know, you know, there are probably more military band members in the US military than there are in the Australian Army, right? It just, they're just, you know, our, our size is so small. So how do, we, how do we protect ourselves? Well, we've long had two strategies. Number one, reliance on an alliance partner, the United States. 
You know, the truth is, functionally, you know, when you have an Indonesian economy that is larger than ours and an Indonesia that is, that is far more powerful than us in terms of population, not to mention China and everything else, and again, I'm not suggesting for a second that Indonesia is a threat, but historically, if you look at your region, how do you guarantee your, your ability to maneuver on your own agency? Rely upon the United States? Uh, because defense of Australia alone, independently, is not feasible. And that has some real ramifications. So all of a sudden, do you make policies freely you know, in that environment? So if a much more powerful neighbor threatens you and you don't have defense and you don't have deterrence and you do not have an alliance and they come to you and say, I'm sorry, I want your coal, you must mine your coal. Do we then stand up and say, no, we're not going to do that based on, on what thing? If there's a threat in that process. Again, I know that's a strange example, but it goes down to that question of sovereignty, how we do it. Now, the second way we, pres we preserve our sovereignty is through something called the rules-based order. So if you're an academic, that may seem like a silly construct that's not real. If you're a policymaker, it may seem like a tagline. I actually have, have a tendency to think it's, it's really meaningful. For a country like Australia, you know, we have made the decision that we are joiners of the first order. We want to be part of everything, every organization, every grouping, whatever we can, because why? We don't want to live in a world where might makes right. We want to live in a world of international law, norms, standards, institutions, organizations, right? And so we're very proactive. So we're not just relying upon the United States. We're trying to, to, to build that type of a society more broadly. And that part I think you would probably widely agree with. But again, even there, our influence in those is not based on our population. You know, it's really based on many respects our, you know, our alliance with the United States. Again, going back to what I said about the Quad, you know, one of these countries is not like the other, right? You know, three major countries. Why are we in the Quad, right? You know, why are we in AUKUS in that regard, right? You can argue, you know, but, but in the end, the fact that we are there is, is a level of, of influence that I think probably serves us well in our ability to guarantee our own pathway in the world. So a bit of a different view, but hopefully that's helpful. Well, we are a forum for de debate and discussion. That's in our mission, so we're, we're fulfilling it tonight. Robin. One of the things I should have learned in life is never follow somebody who's, who's invoked Star Wars. Oh. You just, you can't add to that. But um, I would just... Um, I'm oh, sorry, sorry, Star Trek. Sorry, sorry. So, God, I gave myself away there. Um, but I would just add one story. I mean, to, 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 to refer to, to Gordon's comment about Australia, and you know, the, the whole phrase, Australia punches above its weight. But those alliances really do allow Australia to punch above their weight. And sometimes we, and, and now I'm going to be put my American citizen hat on, back on. I am also an Australian citizen. Um, but you know, as a diplomat, I used to rely on my Australian counterparts to tell my own government things they needed to hear about the region, about Asia, Asia Pacific. And, and sometimes it was so much more credible coming from Australia, because you have this amazingly vexed in some ways position, but also incredibly valuable position of Australia in the region where you are of the region. And so you, you have an understanding and a view of, of what can fly and what won't be acceptable and what might be acceptable that the United States isn't gonna see on its own. And I just think that's an incredibly important role that Australia plays. And it's not, what was the, you know, we're the deputy sheriff. It's not that. It's actually having a really, really important role in international affairs. And I think in general over the years, 
the Australian Foreign Affairs Establishment has really carried that out very, very well. So I want to give credit there. I'm, I'm going to ask my last question before I throw it to the audience, and just a brief reflection because I know the audience has got lots of questions on. And it's a bit of a pet topic of mine, but I want to contextualize it in 2023. What, and you, and you, you, you kind of led, you know, you kind of mentioned something there. You, you wanted the Australian diplomats to talk about the region. And that's one thing that Australia did have a very good reputation, does have a good reputation of being, for want of a better word, its knowledge of the region. The data, however, in, the, in, 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 in teaching of Asian languages, in Asian history, Asian politics in Australia is not great. It's going backwards. Um, with the changing dynamic in our region and the threat perspective and, and the challenges, do you see a change? Do you see a desire out there to increase our Asia capability? And how that, because I believe it helps us deal with so, so here, too, I'm a little bit more optimistic than most. Most people look at the, the rapid decline in Indonesian studies. Well, the reason we had a big spike in Indonesian studies uh, early on was a, a sense of threat perception, right? Yeah, earlier on. I mean, there, there was a massive decline in Russian studies in the United States after the end of the Cold War, right? Uh, uh, and so I, I'm not so sure that's a measure of the relationship. To me, there's a couple more optimistic things. Uh, in the United States, one in seven Americans was born overseas. In Australia, one in three Australians was born overseas. Fully 50% of our population has at least one parent born overseas, right? Uh, and where are they coming from? Yeah. Where are they, you know, uh, there are now 835,000 Indian Australians. Most of them in Victoria. We don't have as many as here in terms of that process, right? But again, that is fundamentally changing our country. That's uncomfortable. It's part of the origins behind this whole MAGA strange movement in the United States as the U.S. goes through a really different demographic shift. Mercifully, we have a much uh, tighter, I think, societal compact in the U.S. in that regard. But that gives me some real optimism. It takes a while before that filters up. But again, it's made a really big difference to our reputation in the region that our foreign minister is the Sarawak-born Penny Wong, who speaks okay. Bahasa Indonesia. It makes a really big difference, right? And coming down the pike, right, it'll take some time, right? But my guess is, that as you look at the way our country is changing, that will make us you know, much more d deeply integrated into the region because we're changing. It's not just about the old notion from the 1950s that you know, white Anglo-Aussies needed to study languages, right? Uh, the, the, the more deeply integrated we become, the more they come here, the better. So ultimately, I actually have great faith in the rising generation of what our new Australians to be kind of at the vanguard of leading our relationships in the region who we are. And I think it's a pretty good thing if you go to the schools and look at it. So that's a, a little bit more of an optimistic take. Mark, do you want to comment on that? Uh, Sorry. No, I, you guys work more closely with the educational sector than well, I have for a while. Um, I mean, you know, when I was at Curtin, we had, that was before the pandemic, of course, but I think, you know, we practically had more students of either Chinese students per se, or of Asian descent in one way, shape, or another, than of any other so-called ethnic group. Um, so they're there. The question is, I'm, I'm always going to argue for more funding for languages, for more funding for you know, my, my degrees in economics and Latin American area studies. Gordon's degree is in? Korean. Korean, you know. And Mark, what did you study? Uh, excellent question. Uh, 
Yeah, so the sorts of things that are slammed, as far as I can tell, in the current government's approach to university funding and university support and, and you know, what, which disciplines are supported. Previous government, thank you, thank you. Um, and so it's not just languages and it's not just Asian studies, it's how do we accept, how do we get the, the value of events like this, you know, of people being trained to think outside their box as opposed to turning universities and institutions of higher in education into only a sort of vocational approach, whether it's a university or a vocational school or whatever. So, you know, coming out of the US system, which is a liberal arts degree, which is you had to study a language and you had to take history and this and that, that's what I think is important. So I think it's a broader question, not specifically about languages and Asian studies. UWA is probably not the place to broach this subject because they've sacked most of their area specialists, so there you go. <laughs> And a few others as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so thanks very much. Uh, questions? I'll walk the mic because it seems to be the efficient. I'll start with Flavia, Sue, and Jim. And you ask four. So I've got four questions already. Excellent. Thank you for giving me the floor, uh, Brandon. I am a Dr. Flavia Belenia Zimmerman. I lecture here at UWA. And I'm also a commissioning editor for the blog of the AWIA, the Australian Outlook. So, I mean, thank you so much, the panel, for this brilliant presentation. And um, one thing that was coming to my mind, particularly when you think about the US in the world, uh, is actually what's going to happen in the presidential primaries. So I think my question is very much focused to Gordon and um, to um, former uh, US consul um, in Perth. Um, do you think that Nikki Haley, she has any chance to get pre-selected? Because what I think it's a big problem, even if we think about um, the war in Ukraine, is that if we have a Trump comeback, I think we would um, have a big turn into, at least in my view, uh, in uh, US posturing uh, domestically and in the world. So I would like to know uh, your prediction, uh, what's gonna happen in the US primaries. Thank you both. I'm gonna do my steps. Political punditry. So first off, uh, Dr. Flavia, congratulations on your PhD. I know you've been working hard on that. That's quite an accomplishment and for your role with AIA, we're very much appreciated. Oh, look, I don't know, nobody knows uh, in terms of the US primaries. I'm pretty optimistic now uh, that Donald Trump, even though he already is a candidate, will not be the nominee. Uh, he's just got a world of hurt on legal cases coming down on him that are just you know, moving forward. Uh, with, with some rapidity at this point. There's a, an old phrase that says, the wheels of justice grind exceedingly slow, but they grind exceedingly fine, right? Uh, or to quote, to quote a Marvel movie in, in uh, Doctor Strange, you know, the bill comes due, right? You know, at some point, these things catch up to you. you know? <laughs> Whether it's in this life for some people or not, we don't know, but I'm pretty confident that Trump won't be the nominee. And if Trump is not the nominee, then it won't be Joe Biden. The only scenario in which Joe Biden runs is he is convinced, probably rightly so, that he's the only one that could beat Trump. Um, and, and so if Trump runs, Biden will run. I don't think anybody in either party want that scenario. 
Uh, I think at this point, it's probably most likely to be Ron DeSantis. Nikki Haley, uh, you know, ha is, is at this point doesn't have a base, right? How do, you, how do you run against somebody where you cannot differentiate yourself from them in any way, shape, or form? And she hasn't even been willing to do that at any, any point. Um, and unfortunately for the Republicans, they've lost an entire generation. Trump has just destroyed them. So there's really no you know, credible non-Trump candidate. And Trump is not known well for, for playing in the, in the sandbox well with others. And so, again, I have no idea who ultimately it will be. Uh, there is a nightmare scenario where you have a repeat of 2016 where you have so many candidates that they could again divide the anti-Trump vote uh, and that uh, then, then he gets in. My guess is he pulls out rather than facing de defeat due to these legal and other issues. Ron DeSantis seems to be most likely right now. All the money is kind of going around him just because they're desperate for somebody that is non-Trump. I have my deep, deep skepticism about his attractiveness beyond that weird, weird state of Florida, right? Uh, uh, so I say that as an Arizonan, which is a weird state myself, but hey, we have two Democratic senators and do not have Carrie Lake as a governor, so that's not too bad. So, um, so anyway, long story short, don't know, um, uh, but it, it is, the game is afoot, so. Do you wanna have a few comments? Okay. You know, I just, to me, it would just be fabulous if some sort of sort of somewhat moderate would have to be quite right-wing Republican would emerge and could be the candidate because a lot of people who voted for Biden would then would swing. Um, I, and I'm not saying that's a great thing, but um, you know, it's early days. I think, frankly, I think uh, Nikki Haley put her hat in the ring too early, um, but I'm not a strategist, but I, I, it's too early for us to guess. Um, I agree with Gordon, it would be hard for Trump. I'm not as sanguine as he is about Biden agreeing to pull back. Um, I think it'll be very hard for Biden not to look in the mirror and see his Ray-Ban sunglasses and say, I'm, you know, I'm this young guy who flew into Kiev or who took the train into Kiev. Mm. So, fingers crossed. But again, if he doesn't run, then we've got the bloodbath on the Democratic side as well as the bloodbath on the Republican side. So it's a mixed blessing. Um, yep, thank you very much. That's a terrific, uh, terrific opening to the, to the year. The three of you is very meaty and controversial and got a good, lot of good stuff in it. Thank you all very much. First of all, I want to say thank you very much to the committee for finding this fab fabulous new venue for us. Um, it beats the climbing sta stairs and creaking lifts to get up to the top of here. Awful bits of the department, of, 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 part of the um, university's back backdrop areas. This is fantastic. So well, well done, committee. And I think a good, great contribution, a great, uh, great discussion to open it this year. Um, the question of the language training. I agree, it's disastrous that we should have been we should have been teaching more in schools. But nonetheless, what we do now have is the new Colombo plan. So we've got all these all these fantastic young people who are leading, who are graduates of their various universities, who are now working in Asia, learning Asian languages, learning Asian cultures, and bringing that culture back to Australia. So that's a fantastic initiative, which in a way compensates a bit, but
but not wholly for the absence now of, of teaching in schools. I'm a great supporter of foreign languages. I have a few myself, and I think they're, they're very extraordinarily useful and valuable for the country. My question really is, um, a short question, one of the most interesting things that's happened in the past week, I think, is this declaration by the Chinese that they're going to be working on a new uh, way of solving the Ukraine, the Ukraine problem and the Ukraine war, the war in the Ukraine. Um, I'm just thinking about what could they be hatching? What could they be thinking? What sort of, what things could be in a package which would make it acceptable to all the parties concerned? And I wonder if our friends, uh, friends sitting in the seats in front of us would like to offer some thoughts on that. Thanks, Sue. And I think I'll pass to Mark, because you had a challenge to the Chinese on that, right? <laughs> now, I, I, well, I'll I tell you how dopey I am. I wrote an op-ed a little while ago, and I suggested, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that if Xi Jinping was serious about trying to do something about uh, world peace, reconstruction, blah, 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 and the Ukraine problem in particular, uh, they could lean on uh, Putin because they've got a bit of leverage and uh, they, I think it's dawned on Putin that China's a much more powerful country than they are. But they could, if they wanted to, as a gesture of uh, spectacular goodwill and demonstration of their uh, abilities, they could offer to go and rebuild Ukraine. Once they get a bit of a peace settlement happening, I don't know how that'll happen, but they've got an army of unemployed people, they've got an excess uh, real estate building capacity in China, send them all over to the Ukraine and they can put up a few dozen blocks of flats or hundreds of blocks of flats uh, in no time at all and everybody would applaud them wildly. So if they want to do something serious, I mean, I don't have any expectation this is actually going to happen, of course, but if you're thinking, you know, outside the box and, and if China's serious about being a good international citizen and doing something, well, there's a suggestion for them, but I'm not expecting it to happen. So there's rhetoric versus reality. Um, that, that's obviously, that was a position that China took in to try to make themselves look good at the Munich Security Conference, that they're peacemakers, and at the same time, uh, the, the warning that went out from Secretary Blinken and everybody else that China is seriously considering donating lethal force. In other words, so China is, at this point, has kind of stayed away from the sanctions regime, stayed away from providing material support for the Russians. Uh, they've largely just helped them financially by buying their stuff, right? Uh, and there's a real concern that China might take another step, which is then to provide armaments, particularly lethal force, to the Ukrainians. And that's the real concern, as opposed to the reality, which would be a marketable escalation in a war that we're hoping to resolve quickly, which make it drag on longer rather than less. But obviously, you know, it, you know that's, that's from a, a Western pro-Ukrainian point of view. I, I am one who is very skeptical of the notion of us externally imposing upon Ukraine some time of a peace settlement. I mean, the the sheer horrors of what have been wrought upon the Ukrainian people, the war crimes, you know, the, the, the transport of all of those children, you know, the, 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 the again, the, the, the way this war has been conducted by, by Russia on a civilian population um, yeah, is such that to, to turn around now and tell the Ukrainians to say, okay, we've now decided to stop, just stop and give up your land, you know, and, and be over, it, it, again, it's not gonna fly. And again, I don't see that happening. I see what's happening right now has been this remarkable international consensus in Europe and the United States and again US allied states around the world in support of that. Obviously a lot more ambivalence in, in, the, in the, what we call the global south, a lot more ambivalence in countries like India, but I, I tend to be okay with that. I'm, I'm patient with that because they've got their own reasons, right? Uh, for China to make that next step and go to kind of lethal support would be a really big deal. Uh, and, and I think it would be one of those deals that would change my prediction for 2023 because it would fundamentally fracture 
the global financial system, the global economic and trading system, because it's one thing to be kind of different sides of policy on this issue. Uh, for, for China to be materially participating would be a very different story altogether. Uh, and again, remember, China did have very good relations with Ukraine until this point. This is not something that I think China was anticipating or thought was going to happen, and they were actually one of the great losers in this initiative. And if they had had any, any other different leader, I think they might have taken a very different tack. But uh, Xi Jinping has painted himself in a bit of a corner with his meeting with Putin, his, his no-limits partnership, and, and they're finding exactly what the cost of those no-limits are. But were they to take that next step, it, it would be, I think, rather cataclysmic in terms of the international community's response to him. Robin? And I have to say, as, as we talked about in the course here, you know, my cynical self says, of course the Chinese are going to propose a solution. Give the, give the Russians Donbass, because that's a, always been Russian. And oh, by the way, there's Taiwan, and that's always been Chinese, so nobody can say anything about that. And that's my fear, that that's, that's what's going on in Xi Jinping's mind. Thank you. So I got Jim, and then the lady after that. Maybe we'll take two questions. We're running out of time. Um, so we'll take two questions in one go, and then just quick reflections. Are we on? Yes, you're on. This is a very short one. Um, I didn't hear a lot until recently about Taiwan. I came here partly to hear your views about whether there'd be a major blow-up in Taiwan this year, because I was thinking of going there for a holiday. <laughs> and I'd like your assurance that I will not have any problem. Thank you. So I forgot to ask people to introduce themselves. I'm also going to be short and sweet. My question is, what would happen to Ukrainian war? Will it end if Putin drops dead tomorrow? Great. Short questions, short answers, and we can move on. Thank you. A third one? Is it related? Uh, no, it's not related to uh, let's, let's just handle these two very quickly. Taiwan. Uh, I, and there's, a, there's a guy called Van Jackson. If you're interested in the debate about uh, Taiwan, he's written an excellent book called, um, which I can't remember the title of, but, uh, but his take on this is that uh, uh, the Chinese are already being deterred. It's unlikely that they're going to invade uh, Taiwan. I think we'd notice if they were getting ready to do so, because you'd need an awful lot of landing craft and other kit to get over there and do it. I think they recognize that it would be an appalling disaster, uh, not just militarily probably, uh, but uh, for the global economy as well. Uh, the chances of escalating into some sort of cataclysmic conflict if the Americans stepped up and uh, did their bit, which everybody expects they would do, although it's worth pointing out that some Republicans are already uh, becoming lukewarm about the war in Ukraine. Uh, and a bit ambiguous about uh, what's going to happen in Taiwan. So I don't think we can be absolutely certain what the American response would be to any kind of conflict. But I think it's unlikely. The Chinese have been deterred uh, this long, uh, and I find it difficult to imagine the circumstances in which they would invade. But I found that uh, same thing in Europe as well, and how wrong I proved to be. So I would agree. Uh, I actually, just to, to the best answer to your question is, I would go to myself personally, to a vacation in, in Taiwan this year, I would not go on a vacation in China. Uh, and part of that is just relative risk. You know, the risk of political detention, the risk of, of legal and other issues for me are greater than the risk of security issues. And so, yeah, I, I would have no qualms about visiting Taiwan this year. Um, um, the uh, question of Ukraine is a really important one. I, I actually, I, I tend to believe 
that this is a war entirely perpetuated uh, by the, the consolidation of a power around a, one, a single person, Vladimir Putin. This is Putin's folly. It's not something the Russian people wanted. It's not something the Russian armed forces wanted. Uh, the longer it goes on, the harder it becomes from the back away. And therein lies the risk of Taiwan. So I don't want to be so flippant about Taiwan. Uh, the real risk in Taiwan, of course, is that tremendous concentration of power around one man in Xi Jinping, who sees as this is a very important part of his legacy. Um, and in a normal system, even in dictatorial systems, there are checks and balances. And the, the fewer of those that you have, the more you have risk of some cataclysmic mistakes. I'd probably be more comfortable going to Taiwan than I would be to some of the islands in the South China, or the atolls in the South China Sea, which have been built up. And I mean, not that you're gonna go there, but if you're looking for a diving holiday on what used to be a little coral reef jutting above the surface of the, of the ocean, that I think is a real concern. Um, and um, you know that's one thing we haven't talked about tonight is is China's um, in, you know, incessant uh, insistence um, on dominance in the South China Sea. Okay, so we're running out of time. I'm going to take three. I think I saw your, yourself. Uh, I saw Samina and the gentleman with the mask. Very quick questions, and then we'll pass the mic for the final answers. Um, I'll be as quick as I can. Um, my name is Bruce huh? Campbell. I'm a former no, academic. Put your answer was answered. Yeah. Um, I'm a former academic, a reformed academic. Um, I just want to uh, just quickly mention that we've had a classic sort of realist, idealist uh, debate here about the defence of Australia, and the examples given by the realist side are: yeah, look at look at Ukraine, look what Japan's doing with their defence. We can't possibly be non-aligned. We can't defend Australia on our own. But Australia is unique and it's completely different to uh, Ukraine or Japan. We're the only country in the world that has an entire continent. We have no historical enemies. Uh, we have no disputed boundaries except that little tiny bit up near East Timor. Um, we are in a position to show the world how to go about building peace and we shy away from it. And academics fail to focus on the unique opportunities that Australia has, and just applies the same old realist arguments to Australia. We're in a different position. I guess my question is, would you think about that a bit more on the realist side of things? Thank you. Samina, and then Thank you. Thank you very much, Samina Yasmin member of the AWI committee, WA branch, and I teach at UWA. Uh, my apologies, Robin, I, because I'm very jet-lagged, just reached back this morning, and so I've missed you a bit. But I'm just wondering, be, below the global level analysis, uh, what would you think about the Chinese having a greater presence in the Middle East, uh, and also Africa by extension, uh, in contrast to the American presence, how would that shape the global scene in future? And Mark, specifically for you with the climate change and you know, coming back from Pakistan, uh, what do you think is likely in terms of the major powers actually supporting developing countries that have got these massive problems and they're still trying to rebuild from the losses that they incurred last year? Thank you, and just introduce yourself. 
uh, Benedict Molator. I'm an Indonesian student and a former German graduate of the university, so I confess some interest in language too. My question is mainly for Professor Beeson, and it's related to this realism question, so I hope um, Partly prompted by the op-ed that's been published by John Menager and Mike Gilligan, to which you've put your name about the abdication of Australian sovereignty. And partly thinking back to your essay from 2011, I think, on middle power diplomacy, Can Australia Change the World? And partly thinking further back to what Coral Bell said in the 1980s, the phoenix-like capacity of alliance dependence to rise from its own ashes. My question is this crushing disappointment, maybe, that with the present government, how much is carried over, whatever. Are these things a question of leadership or are they a question of what the country is actually capable of other than what any uh, a government or leaders can, can achieve for us? Thank you. Coral Bell, that's a, I, I had to learn that name when I was a first year diplomat and I have forgotten it until now. So I'll give to Mark first. No, I mean, I think they're excellent questions, and Bruce's point about the, the impoverished imagination of the, um, I almost said ruling class, that would have been a bit of a gaffe, wouldn't it? But the, <laughs> but the political elites in Canberra, there's a sort of monoculture intellectually about how we think about ourselves, our relationship with the world, our capacity to do anything. And uh, somebody, I can't remember, who wrote Frightened Country, famous Australian policy maker? That's Alan Renouf. Oh, well done. Ten points for the chap at the back there. So uh, Alan Renouf wrote a book about 40 years ago called Frightening Country. And I think that's a pretty apt way of thinking about Australia. And you can tell I'm a, an immigrant. I used to be a palm, and uh, don't get me started on Brexit. But that's another unbelievable fiasco. But, uh, but it, it is a, a telling example, that and what's going on in this country, about the impoverished quality of leadership and the uh, inability to be able to think uh, in any kind of different way. And Penny Wong, who I'm a big admirer of, and you mentioned, and I think she's fantastic. But I mean, I remember asking her at one of the AIA conferences about the alliance and what does she think about it? Is it time for a bit of a rethink? Blah, blah, blah. And her response was, it's non-negotiable. It's, I think her exact phrase was, it's above discussion. So it's just something that we cannot even think about in any kind of <coughs> critical way or even the suggestion that we might actually think about being genuinely independent in some way. And you know, people like uh, Malcolm Turnbull, Paul Keating, others have pointed to the fact that our strategic sovereignty is uh, being affected by our very, very close uh, dependence on the United States technologically and militarily. Uh, and that constrains our freedom of action and ability to be able to act differently uh, from what they, they want to do. And the consequences of this, I think, are, you know, unbelievably clear from our history. I mean, who thinks in retrospect that the Iraq war was a good idea? Not even the Americans think that was a good idea now. So, you know, why we were involved in, in the first place, and half a million Iraqis, I think, have died as a direct consequence of this. So when China looks around the world, and everybody's given them a hard time about their being assertive and you know creating bases. I mean, I don't know how many American bases there are around the world, 150, something like that. I, don't quote me on that, but there's an awful lot. Uh, they do have a habit of flouting the rules-based order when it suits them to do so. And we go along with them, doffing our cap, or whatever the strategic metaphor might be, but we go along with it when it's not in our direct strategic interest to do so. And I think there is an argument to be made about our ability to do something different and to 
a, a time when the world desperately needs some famously creative diplomacy that middle powers are supposed to be promoting, let's bloody do it for Christ's sake. I mean, it would make a remarkable uh, change and somebody's got to do it. The Chinese aren't going to do it. The Americans aren't going to do it. So, you know, let's leave it to the Finns or the Norwegians maybe, but it would be good if Australia recognized that they could do something useful too. Well, I would just say the Finns and the Norwegians have just joined NATO. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just put that in context. This is your, 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 your realist rejoinder. Look, I would love to live in a world where we're an island nation and nobody threatens us. And that may be true if we're just kind of this old agrarian economy. But when you lived with this deeply integrated economy, we, we, we truly have regional and global interests, right? So all I would point to is that for the last three years, we have been on the receiving end of some very overt economic coercion from China. You know, blockades of our coal, of crayfish, of barley, of wine, you know, uh, and, and, you know, does, so the use of political and, I mean, economic tools for political ends, right? And so the, the Chinese response to us was, if you wanted to avoid that, all you had to do is, you know, do these 14 things, right? You know, do not limit Chinese access to your intelligence, you know, gathering capabilities in terms of, Huawei in, 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 in the generation. You know, limit any criticism of China in your college campuses. There was these 14 points which were, you know, closed ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. We don't like think tanks that criticize China. So these 14, listen, you have to do, so all right. So this is the world we live in. If we do not have an alliance, we don't have the capability, wherewith do we then maneuver ourselves in the world? And so again, I fully understand all the mistakes that my homeland has made the insanity of it, the craziness, the Iraq war, I would agree with that completely, right? But in the end, the fundamental question for Australian policymakers is, are we safer with an alliance with the United States or without? Do we have more latitude with or without, right? And in the world that we live in today, it's a pretty complex world, and again, as the Finns have recently decided, it's one where they want to be part of NATO. And our number one trading partner is China, right? And, and their activity in the Indian Ocean and their activity in the, Indi in the South China Seas are such that we, we decided, yeah, that's not kind of the world we want to live in. But we find ourselves at the brink of a, you know, a climatic apocalypse and facing the possibility of a nuclear war in Europe. I mean, whatever we're doing, it's not working terribly well. So, uh, and your realist you know, view has been the dominant one for forever, basically, and it's got us to where we are now, which is not a happy place. <laughs> Some final reflections? Yeah. I, I, you know, at the risk of seeming like we're ganging up, I just think, you know, I, I've been sitting here thinking, could Australia be Switzerland? Could, could, could they? And, you know, you made the point about Australia has no strategic interest in all these places, all of these wars, all of these things. Well, does the United States really have strategic interest in coming and defending Australia? Other than that we said we would. Other than that we said we would. And I used to love it when an aircraft carrier group would come into port. Um, and I could, you know, I was suddenly the most, most popular person in Perth um, because um, uh, everybody but me would hear that the uh, carrier group was on its way because it was top secret. So the consulate, of course, couldn't be improved. But anybody who knew anyone in a brothel uh, knew months before I did um, <laughs> that a, a carrier group was coming in. And, um, and, and you know, so I, I theoretically controlled the seats on the flyouts. Who got to fly out on a, on a whatever it's called, help me pee something or other and land and get caught by the tail hook and, and then get 
catapulted off of the off the aircraft carrier out at sea, and it, it is it's like Disneyland on steroids. It's a fabulous experience, but I I used to value those trips, even though they were actually a nightmare to organize and a nightmare to clean up after because of all those sailors who went AWOL because Australian women mainly are so attractive that they decided they should, they should not get back on the <laughs> ship and leave. Um, and that was a bit of a mess. But Collateral benefits of alliances. Exactly, exactly. You ended up in the right place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, but it was a way to say, look, when we tell you we are your ally, and if you need us, we will be here and we can be here. This is what we mean. And that was a really, you know, just kernel of why that alliance is important on both sides. Thank you so much. Can we have a great round of applause for the speakers? Can I, can I invite very quickly Connor to, uh, for a very quick vote of thanks? Sorry, we've gone a bit over time.